my name is Ben Verhulst. I am one of the elders here at City Reform Church. Um, let's, let's dig into the beginning of Matthew's gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Um, we ask that you will send your spirit this morning and continue to speak with uh, to us so that uh, we may understand the message that you have given us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'd like to investigate a claim with you this morning. I firmly believe that the gospel writers were very good writers and were very intentional about everything that they wrote. But it seems like the best evidence against this claim is Matthew 1. Right? If I started off my sermon this morning introducing 42 generations of my lineage, you'd probably go get another cup of coffee or turn off your TV. Straight recitation of historical facts is really, really dry. And to make matters worse, Matthew's history isn't even complete. He skips some of the generations that make up this lineage. If historical facts are dry, not even doing all the historical facts has to be worse, right? So what's Matthew doing here? I think the answer is in verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew 
is not a historian like we sometimes think of them, just repeating dry facts uh, to enlighten us about history, to enlighten us about past events. The gospel writers were interested in history. They're telling us historical things, but they're doing so for a purpose. John writes, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. The gospel writers want us to come to a conclusion. They want us to hear what they are trying to tell us, and they're trying to tell us about Jesus. So Matthew lays out Jesus' genealogy, but he has a purpose for doing so. He wants us to see something, and he lays out a chain, right? He lays out Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. I think that's the message that Matthew has for us. Abraham found, is the founder of the nation, right? God came to Abraham and made a covenant with him. That covenant stretches through history, and his descendants are who we know as Israel. Then we get to David. David is the great king of Israel. He is the one that uh, everyone looks back on and says, oh, we need another David. And then there's the exile, Israel's lowest point. And if those are the links of the chain, right, then where does that leave us? Matthew would leave us in exile. He is not convinced that Israel has returned from exile. They've come back to the land, but that's not one of the links in the chain. The, the next link in the chain is Jesus. See, the Jews were sent into exile because they continually sinned against God. They rebelled against him. They fostered injustice and idolatry, and they refused to hear the words of the prophets. But Israel also received promises. We read one of those promises in our sacred reading this morning. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets continued to prophesy to Israel. They continued to tell of a return, a return from exile, a time when God would restore Israel, would renew Israel, would make things right. And, and that's what Israel was looking forward to. But Israel didn't quite understand what was being promised. See, Israel was looking forward to a return from, or a return to the promised land. And they got that, right? Israel thought that the promised land was really important, and it, and it is. But in Israel's mind, the promised land and the promises were, were directly connected, right? So in Joshua 21, we read, the Lord gave Israel all the land that he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. So the, the idea of rest and land are linked together. In fact, in Numbers 14, right, we read of this rebellious generation that God says, not one shall come into the land. Right? God says all of that generation will die in the desert. But when that story is recounted in Psalm 95, the psalmist 
quotes God as saying, they shall never enter my rest. In that, in that text, rest and land are, are completely synonymous. It's the same idea. So Israel thinks what we need is to come back to the land. But that's not, they don't find the rest that they're looking for in the land, right? In fact, they're conquered. They're conquered first by the Greeks and they're conquered by the Romans. They experience civil war, political strife. They're oppressed both by foreigners and by uh, powerful and wealthy Israelites. They, aren't, they don't find the rest that they're looking for. In fact, when Matthew's writing, Jerusalem has again been conquered by a second Roman army and actually destroyed. So Matthew, Matthew plays into this. He recognizes what Israel's looking for. They're looking for rest, and they haven't found it. And Matthew says that's because Jesus is the answer, not return to the promised land. How does Jesus answer Israel's exile? Jesus solves Israel's fundamental problem. Israel's fundamental problem is not being outside of the promised land. Israel's fundamental problem is their alienation from God. It wasn't the land that gave Israel rest. It wasn't the city of Jerusalem that made them a great nation. God is what made them a great nation. God is the one who gave them rest. God is the one who gave them prosperity and security. Israel thought that by returning to the land, they could force those promises, but they continued to ignore the prophets. They continued to be unfaithful to God. They needed a reconciliation with their creator. Now, it's, it's easy to look at Israel and say, well, yes, obviously they confused the land with God. They thought that it was actually the land. But we do this too. Um, my family is, we're moving out of our house right now. And um, as we scroll through house listings, it's really, really easy to think that house, that would solve our problems, right? It's got a big yard, more, more space. It's in a better neighborhood. That's what would, what would solve our problems. Maybe for you, it's a job uh, finances or winning the Super Bowl. I think in our culture often it's uh, our children, right? We look to our children and think that if they are completely successful, if we help them succeed, we have made it. All of these things were confusing, right? We're confusing um, sports programs, they're, they don't bless our children, right? God is the one who blesses. A new house doesn't bless the family that lives inside it. God is the one who blesses. The comedian Jim Carrey, I think, gets this spot on. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Sometimes we think that if we were to achieve the success of someone like Jim Carrey, if we were to make all that money, that would be the answer. That is what would make us happy. That would bless us. And, it, and he says it's not, right? There has to be something else. 
Israel didn't need the promised land. They needed a restored relationship with God. And later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells them this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest is found in the person of Jesus. The restored relationship, right? Jesus offers that to all who come to him. We don't need to go to Palestine. We don't need to um, achieve some other status to get the rest and the blessings that God promises us. Jesus tells them, tells us, come to me. So what does that mean for us today, right? We, we can talk about how Israel needed Jesus. We can talk about how Jesus is our eternal rest, right? That's a big theme in Hebrews. And, and I don't want to discount those things. Those are, those are really important. But we are living in an in-between time, right? Jesus has come once. Jesus has offered us this salvation. But he hasn't come again. He hasn't yet restored all things. And where we are today, we are still experiencing brokenness in our relationships with each other, brokenness in our relationships with the world, and brokenness in our relationship with God. In fact, in a few minutes, we're going to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we'll sing these lines. Ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. We will confess that we, the people of God, are still in exile. Because the church is in exile. The church is the body of Christ and the family of Christ, right? We need these things to be true in our lives. As the body of Christ, the church still ministers to us. And as the family of Christ, Uh, we find a place in God's family. We find peace with God through Jesus Christ. So I would like to address three um, implications of this. The first is that church commitment matters. I, I went through law school and I often talk to people who are going into law school and they ask, you know, what, what does it mean to be a Christian in law school? How can I be um, a Christian? What are some tips you have? And the number one thing I tell people is that they need to be part of a local church. And I'll tell them why. See, law school is an extremely competitive place. It's not just busy, um, but you actually have to compete with your classmates. Um, There's a limited number of good grades, and so only the best students get them. Everything in law school is determined by your class rank. If you are a good student, you are valuable. You are worth a lot. People want to be around you. People want to know what you do uh, to succeed. If you're at the bottom of your class, No one really has time for you. You're not very interesting. You can't offer much, right? Law school is is cutthroat. 
your entire value is determined by your grades. And church is just entirely different. When I would go to church on Sundays, people would ask me how my classes were going, but they didn't care, right? Now, they were willing and ready to celebrate with me when I succeeded and to mourn with me when I failed, but my value wasn't determined by, my, by how I was doing in my classes. I was a beloved brother because we have the same father. There are many other systems that we encounter that are doing the same thing as law school. Now they're usually doing it in more subtle ways, but we're constantly being asked to defend our value. Maybe it's attractiveness, maybe it's productivity, it's wealth, it's the right job title, right? All of these things tell us this is your value. Your value is determined by this. And then we come to church, and none of those things really matter. At church, we hear that our value is already determined. It's determined by Christ. Christ has given us value. He has told us, you are beloved. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. When you are part of a church, your value, you are reminded of your value by others in the church. Right? We need each other to do that. I need you and you need me. When you lose your job, I'm going to mourn with you. But I'm also going to remind you that your job is not what determined your value. When I win the lottery, I need you to remind me that my worth is not determined by how much money I have. And just this morning, right, I mean, there are pandemics and there are blizzards. And I'm not trying to guilt anyone or, or tell you that you need to be present in church um, no matter what. But I, I want you to know that it, it is important. We miss you, right? We need you and you need us. We need to hear the gospel from each other in actions as well as words. And that gets to hospitality. Hospitality is, I think, the second implication of the rest that we find in Christ. In Galatians 2, Paul writes some really incredible things about how we're saved by grace through faith alone. And that's, I don't want to miss anything. That's really important. But sometimes um, in our Reformation zeal, we get a little too caught up in the 
in the saved by faith alone part. And we miss the context of Galatians 2. Uh, What Paul is really addressing there is that Christians aren't eating together. There are divisions in the church. Um, If we deny salvation by faith alone, we're, we're missing something really critical. But what Paul is really fired up about is eating together. The, the idea that we are saved by faith alone um, is really easy to say, but we also need to live it out, right? We need to act like we're saved by faith alone. Um, and, and a big part of that is, is acting like family. Hospitality is really that. It's treating each other like family like we are actually members of the same body. When we share the same table, when we share the same living room, right? we are saying, I want you to be part of my life. Not because of anything you've done, not because of your status, but because you are saved by Christ, and so am I. And that's where we get to the third implication. Real hospitality is actually only possible for Christians. It's only possible because what Christ has done for us. Uh, Jen Schmidt wrote an article um, a couple years ago at this point, I think, that has just haunted me um, and keeps popping up in my mind. Um, And she wrote about the difference between hospitality and entertaining. Um, Really, it all boils down to the difference between these two things. Entertaining is about presenting myself. Entertaining is about you coming into my house and getting to look at how nice I am, uh, what a nice place I've presented to you, um, the, the things that I can offer you. It's about elevating myself, right? I have done everything just right. So you come into my house and, and feel uh, welcome. I meet all of your expectations. But it also makes us slaves to those expectations. Um, I, I was thinking back on this Christmas season, the number of times that I apologized for the gifts I was giving. Right? Why? Because I wouldn't want anyone to think that... Um, this gift that doesn't quite measure up is, is the best I can do, right? I wouldn't want to offend anyone. Now, that's, that's simply, um, that's entertaining, right? That's not hospitality. I am, I am concerned about how you are perceiving me. And, and to be clear, we are never doing one or the other. It's always a blend of these two. So if you also apologized for a gift, for giving a gift this Christmas, you haven't failed. Um, we are all on the spectrum here. Hospitality, on the other hand, requires us um, to not be looking at our status, to not be concerned about our status. It's something that is about welcoming others. Um, And sometimes that means they're welcomed into messiness. Um, It means that we don't have everything squared away. It means that they get to see how our family is 
99% of the time. Um, hospitality is about being, welcoming people in as themselves, where they're free to be themselves, and you're free to be yourself. And, and those, those kinds of things can only happen when you don't have anything to prove, when you are no longer concerned about your status and your um, worth in the, the eyes of others. And that's a freedom that we get through Christ. Christ gives us the opportunity just by coming to him in faith to have our value established. We don't have to achieve that through entertaining. I can welcome you into my mess because I can say, Christ died for me. Christ has given me worth even though my lawn looks terrible. There's a vulnerability that's required in hospitality and it's only possible when we've already found rest in Christ. So as we go into this year, as we enter Matthew's gospel, um, I think the message is the same. Matthew, the first thing Matthew wanted us to understand is that Christ is the answer to our big problem, our alienation from God. Not just the material conflicts that we face, not just the conflicting desires we have, but the big conflict. And as we go into the year, as we make our New Year's resolutions, um, we don't have to we don't have to be concerned about those that big question we don't have to worry that our status with god is at stake we can rest in christ and we can rest with each other as the body of christ as the family of christ let's pray Heavenly Father, when you sent Christ, you gave us a gift. You gave us the gift of being welcomed into your family, being forgiven, being restored to right relationship with you. Help us to rest in that status. Help us to see Christ as that solution. And also help us to share that with each other, um, to share that rest with uh, those around us, especially in this church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.